Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And today we have a very exciting episode. We are going to be diving into all sorts of Netflix movies. We'll be talking about Hillbilly Elegy, The Prom, and most recently, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. But first, we have a special guest joining us again. So we want to welcome back from our Mulan episode, the man of the people, Mr. Ryan Lamb. Hi, Nick. Hey, Sophia. Thanks for having me back. I am super excited to discuss uh, a few things with you guys today. I'm doing fine, not that you guys asked, but Disney's definitely on some new shit. So you're back specifically with Disney-related content because of Disney's recent Investor Day. So I know you have a lot to say about this. Yeah, Disney uh, had a huge Investor Day. And this year, given the pandemic, normally we'd see a lot of announcements around the upcoming Disney movies. Everything would be at like D23 or at Comic-Con. But obviously that didn't really happen this year. And so Disney went out with this all-out bonanza at their Investor Day, where they really highlighted all of their upcoming slate, both theatrically as well as on Disney+. Plus. And so as a part of that announcement, they went through and listed just, I think, 10 new Marvel TV shows, 10 new Star Wars series, and then 15 Disney live action animation and Pixar series, and 15 Disney live action Disney animation and Pixar features, which is incredible to see that amount of content that they all rolled out and listed. And some of these things we already knew about most of what they discussed, but to see that all come out at once is just such a power play from Disney to be like, yes, we own culture. I guess my first thing is this is just too much stuff. It's just like a content overload. And I guess it's interesting to think about how this model compares to HBO Max and Warner Brothers, that announcement that we got where they will have an exclusive window where a film will be available on the streaming platform and then it will leave. But Disney seems like their model is just dumping all of these new series onto the platform, all of these new features. I think it feels more like the comic books and how that works with a lot of this stuff. But do you think Disney fans are going to actually have to try to consume all of this content to understand Star Wars, for example? So I think one, it's not quite Netflix level where they're dumping 10 new things every week and you don't even know what's coming. Disney, of course, did this massive drop of all of the upcoming content as their roadmap, but I wouldn't expect that we see these 10 new series all drop the same month. This is really a roadmap over the next four years of what we can expect to see, both from new TV series that will be on Disney Plus to actual movies made for Disney Plus and then movies that will actually be in theatrical release. And so because of that, I don't know that necessarily it's it's going to be that overwhelming as the investor day kind of felt. What you're really going to see is the content slowly dripped out to us over the course of the next few years. And I wouldn't expect that we have multiple of these new items mm-hmm. on at one time, because one or two of these at a time is enough to keep people subscribed to Disney+. Plus and ready to go to the next thing. And as you were mentioning, you know, it is really like comics. You've got three comic book series that will be hitting in just early 2020, all leading up to the Black Widow release. 
in May of 2020, which will actually, as of this announcement, still being planned to be released in movie theaters. And so I think people who are into Marvel movies that are really, really super fans, they're going to be consuming all of this. Going back to what you initially said, I don't think Netflix necessarily releases new content that you don't know about that's coming, or I don't know of them having an investor day like this where you get everything at once. Because you can look at their slate and see what's coming. They don't have the IP though. And so if they did go out and say, here's the hundred things we're releasing in the next three years, people would be like, I don't know what these are. I need to see a trailer. There, there are a few things people get hyped on. Obviously, when you've got huge filmmakers, Venture doing Mank, that's going to be a big deal for a certain population of people. And they're going to get excited about that. But there is also a lot that gets put on Netflix that people have never heard of or aren't expecting. And it just shows up one day when they go start up the app and they're like, oh, what's this new movie that I see is number two in the US right now? I guess I'll watch that. But I think that has the ability to reach more people, whereas this Disney Plus content is targeted to a specific audience. Like if you're not a Star Wars fan before, you're not necessarily going to turn into series eight, you know, in this timeline of films and television I think you might have the ability to based on new characters and basically spinoffs of these concepts. But I think Disney is just trying to capitalize in making this now 86 million subscribers and in focusing their attention specifically on Disney Plus, which I have feelings about. And I, you know, once theaters reopen, eventually they're going to distract their attention back to theaters. So I mean, especially picking up on what you're saying about returning to theaters, you think about the HBO announcement and mm -hmm. a lot of people, maybe even, you know, you, Nick and Sophia might have concerns about what's the long-term implications for movie theaters when you have HBO Max saying all of these theatrical releases are now going to streaming on HBO Max. Well, Disney's not quite taking that same position. Soul is upcoming and that is only going straight to Disney+. Plus. But then if you look at the next upcoming theatrical movies that Disney has on the slate, Raya and the Last Dragon is a March 5th release, and that is actually supposed to go to theaters, but you can also purchase it using Disney Plus Premiere Access, which is how they released Mulan. And then moving beyond that, Black Widow is a, at this point, theatrical only release. I, I can't imagine that they don't use the same Premiere Access type of release for Black Widow in May because of the state of the pandemic, even with vaccines. Uh, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. I imagine a lot of people still aren't going to feel comfortable going back to see movies in theaters. And Disney's not going to want to forego all of those viewers, all of those eyeballs that would be going to, to spend a billion dollars in theaters to watch that movie. So it seems like they're trying to walk a middle road between the old way that movies were released and what HBO Max is doing. The thing that I am struggling with, I think no matter what, is that even if there are some where they're saying like, we do have theatrical releases planned here... I I think that things like The Mandalorian and these series have taken over the place of Marvel movies for now. And I think Disney planting their flag in the series camp, still saying they're going to have some theatrical releases. But I think that's their way of saying that, yes, we're still going to have movies, but the future of film, quote unquote, for Disney, Marvel, etc., is the series. It is not the film. Sure. I, I think, too, you can't deny that the macro trend, you know, whether it's five or 10 years from now, is people watching on streaming more than in theaters. I think Disney is still pursuing a slower course to that ultimate end. I think because they can, though. Absolutely. Did we ever get numbers from Disney Plus for how much box office they made off 
premiere access for Mulan? So this Screen Rant article says that Mulan made a total of $35.5 million on its opening weekend from Disney Plus subscribers. I mean, I think if you go back and look at Mulan, the box office number comparison to pre-pandemic is going to look bad. But they're investing in a model that they think, you know, in the investor day, they actually specifically spoke to the fact that they think Disney Plus will be profitable by 2024. So they're sinking a lot of money into these series and original films that they're pushing straight to Disney Plus in the hopes that this ultimately makes Disney Plus profitable. They are already over 80 million subscribers in the United States, which they have did not even come close to projecting that number. They're well way and above what they even expected when they initially launched Disney Plus. I would say, yes, the numbers for Mulan maybe don't look good compared to pre-pandemic numbers. But if you were to ask Disney, they're saying, hey, we think that Mulan was successful enough that we're going to use this same model for our future releases. The other problem with all of this in relating it to HBO Max is that Disney owns all of their content. Like this is all Disney material and Mm -hmm. this is not HBO Max material. I mean, the artists of the films that HBO Max now acquired they're still coming out saying one they hate hbo max and two they couldn't believe that this happened denis villeneuve and then christopher nolan they both came out with articles and denis specifically whose article is one of the best things that i've read this year were just floored that this happened and i think that's another big difference so if we're talking about nolan and villeneuve the villeneuve article i agree was a lot better and it was just a a more well-written editorial it's in variety if anyone wants to read it but with nolan i made a joke when we did our last news update that this was his fault about warner brothers and hbo max and i think so in his initial article he kind of had this big tantrum where he's like hbo max is the worst streaming service and then he kind of walked it back aka his publicist stepped in and he decided to kind of fight for below the line workers and one person who kind of links these two is patty jenkins so wonder woman 1984 was that first hbo max warner brothers film that was announced that it was not going to be in theaters it was going to go to hbo max on christmas day and then gal gadot and patty jenkins i'm sure got to negotiate with hbo max to get their back end but then patty jenkins has this trailer for the the new movie she's making with Disney Plus. So it's it's kind of like, oh, now do certain creators that were screwed by this Warner Brothers deal go to Disney? Like, is that what's going to happen? I don't know if you can draw a straight line between those two. I think of the filmmakers who were most upset by this Warner Brothers move, I think Patty Jenkins was probably one of the least upset because it seemed like they had already negotiated with Mm -hmm. them behind the scenes before they made the announcement for Wonder Woman versus what happened with Christopher Nolan and Denis Villeneuve, where they were blindsided. They weren't told ahead of time, hey, this is what we're doing. And obviously we're we're very upset by that. that. That was a bad business move on Warner Brothers part. And I don't understand why they felt the need to make the announcement when they did instead of waiting for them to make the negotiations with filmmakers. But that's ultimately the choice they made maybe because they were worried the news would leak if they tried, you know, going through and negotiating with all these filmmakers before they made the announcement. It just wouldn't happen. There's no way Damien is going to say, yes, let's release Dune on HBO Max. We got to put on our our business owner's hat here, which I know you guys are are here for the, the filmmaker appreciation as you know, an Oscars podcast. No, but that's what they're doing too. They don't want their movie released on TV. Denny said, and like, I couldn't believe this, but he said, Dune is the best film I've ever made. And out of everything he's made, if he's saying that, he 
he does not want this released on TV. I mean, it's a good point, but I think everyone is is pretending that we're still in 2019 and we're not. The, the reality is, is there's no possibility for a billion dollar movie release in 2020 or 2021. And so either the companies are going to have to sit on these movies until 2022 to release them or they get them out now. And as a business, they need to bring in cash to keep the business running. I mean, and, and these are their biggest of big films that they have on their slate. So that is the conversation. It's do we keep pushing this? And I know that doesn't look favorable to audiences or to the business, but they have a lot smaller pictures than Dune to release that can give them some cash flow. Like the Suicide Squad. Or the Batman, like all of these things that we know. (laughs) Yeah, I think too, what's interesting is like Christopher Nolan. So he had this huge push, obviously, to put Tenant in theaters. It becomes a domestic bomb, which we can say partially triggered Warner Brothers to go down this path, right? To release movies straight to the platform for HBO Max. And now what is Christopher Nolan doing this week? He's wanting people to watch Tenant on PVOD because that's where it is now. And that's how a majority of Americans will watch Tenant Mm -hmm. is on their TVs. So this irony of it all is crazy. Yeah, the reality is, is that 20 years from now, more people will have watched these films at home than the people who watched in the theater. So... It's nice to think, oh, I get this big release up front. But the long lasting legacy here is you guys didn't watch Citizen Kane in theaters. I mean, maybe you did. I you guys have, you probably have. But <laughs> the vast least. majority of people are not watching, you know, movie masterpieces in theaters when they're released. They're consuming them at home. I personally am a woman of the people from 1942. I don't know what you're talking about here. <laughs> I also will say that I saw Tenet the way that Nolan intended, which was at a drive in where no one could figure out how to operate their car lights. I feel like all of this news, I'm more inclined to think that it's bleak and it's just a sign of where we're going. And I feel like a lot of them are just using the pandemic as an excuse and that the writings have been on the wall for a long time and they're moving towards streaming and TV and they're using this as their reason to go full force into their IP replica future. Yeah, I mean, especially with Disney Plus here, this investor day tells that that same story, albeit maybe not as aggressively as as HBO Max. It still is an acceleration of this trend of moving content from theaters onto streaming. Ryan, I will ask you also just we were kind of doom and gloom about movie theaters, at least I am. And I guess what are the movies that are coming to Disney Plus or even to theaters that you're most excited for? I mean, honestly, I'm really excited for these releases that are going to be out in the next few months with Soul and, and with uh-huh. Raya and the Last Dragon, which is this Southeast Asia-inspired Disney animation film that looks kind of like Indiana Jones. And Kelly Marie Tran is voicing the lead and Aquafina is in it as well. And so for me, like that's what I'm most excited for because that harkens back to like the feelings of Moana to me or, or Frozen, where you're getting this great Disney animation film. And we haven't had a Disney animation film now in, in a long long time. So that's what I'm most excited for. And I know that if my theaters are open and I feel safe that on March 5th, I can go to the theaters and see it. But if that's not the case, I can sit at home and turn on my TV and watch it at home. And that's really exciting to me. Well, I'm excited for you. I'm actually excited for Black Widow, I will say. Scarlett Johansson, Florence Pugh, Rachel Weisz, great cast. If it comes to theaters in May, like it's expected now, I'm also excited for that one. And we'll have to talk to you about that when that time comes. Yeah, well, um, thank you guys for having me on to to get a chance to talk about Disney and, and all the exciting future there is there. And I know you guys are a little bit bummed about the trajectory of the industry 
history, but as someone who just wants to see my favorite characters and in favorite movie franchises, I'm really excited for the future that Disney has. Tis the damn season, right, Ryan? Sure is. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we will see you back again soon for more updates on the world of Disney-related pop culture. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you, Ryan. We'll see you soon. All right. So now let's go into our Netflix awards contenders that we're going to talk about today. So first, please, if you haven't yet and you're interested, please check out the episodes we've already done this year on some Netflix releases. We've done I'm Thinking of Ending Things to Five Bloods, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and most recently, Mank. All of which have been in the conversation in Critics Awards so far this season, which is really exciting. So a lot of Netflix love here, but we do have a few more today that we'll talk about and we'll get into if these are going to be in the conversation as well or not. I think they will all take up a different amount of space. So first, do we want to just get the most controversial one out of the way? Hillbilly Elegy? I think it's a good place to start. I thought your mama was going to be all right. (laughs) Be happy. I know I could have done better. But you, you got to decide. You want to be somebody? I've been doing real good. I just had a down month. I got an interview tomorrow, Mom. Otherwise, I... Oh, you know me. I always land on my feet. Don't look at that. Come on. Come on. Don't you look at You look at me. You look at me. You let her get away with this every time. I told you that I would do better. You always say that. You're lying. I always try. You got to think about these kids. What do you think I've been thinking about since I was 18 years old, huh? Never had a life where I wasn't thinking about the kids. I think the score was fine. I mean, I think that's the one nice thing I have to say about it. And a Zimmer score. For drama, which is interesting. He usually doesn't do a lot of drama scores. He usually does more epic Christopher Nolan action types of scores. So if you haven't seen it yet or just need a refresher, the IMDb description here. An urgent phone call pulls a Yale law student back to his Ohio hometown where he reflects on three generations of family history and his own future. It's directed by Ron Howard, based on the book by J.D. Vance. It stars Glenn Close, Amy Adams, Gabriel Basso, The Return of Frida Pinto. I knew she was in it, but when her name popped up in the beginning, I was like, oh my god, yes. So generally, how did you feel about this movie? I know you said you liked the score, but other first reactions? I know you waited a little bit longer to watch it, so I'm curious now that it's fresh in this your brain. This was the last one of the bunch that I watched, and um, <laughs> you know... <laughs> My roommate and I both watch this together. He is definitely more keen to like the politics and the landscape of Hillbilly Elegy in terms of having read the book in 2016 when that came out and sort of relating that to the Trump era. And we just had a really difficult time watching this. I probably laughed harder than I have during most movies this year. Just so many cringy moments. I felt so uncomfortable so many times. Mm -hmm. I guess what was it like for you? So I think important to note, we're both from Ohio, not from where this movie takes place. But being from Ohio, at least for me, I read the book 
a couple of years ago around when it came out. And I remember just having a lot of issues generally with the book. It wasn't really for me. So I was a little worried about what would happen with this film if it would try to kind of apologize for J.D. Vance's politics or how it would go into that. But what I found really odd about this movie is that I think Ron Howard was almost afraid of the political conversation around J.D. Vance and around this topic that he almost just Mm -hmm. didn't touch it. I think this movie is just kind of boring. It felt like a lifetime movie to me. Like there was just not really much going on that was interesting. I felt like the flashbacks didn't work at all. It just didn't make a lot of sense and it wasn't engaging to me in a way that I even could find a way to really care about Mm -hmm. these characters. I think it was just morally confused with an already morally confused backstory. But at the end of everything, I was like, okay, so what is this trying to say? It was trying to blame Mm -hmm. the people and not the circumstance, but also glorify them. Like none of it just made sense. And my roommate had sent me a podcast to listen to with citations needed and they talk about the politics and a lot of the material behind the story and I think it really helped explain why this movie is so bad. They talk about the industrialization of the town and gender economy and a lot of things that the movie doesn't even touch on which I think would have helped frame the story so much better even if it were to be more conflicting in different ways. Yeah, it's like, to me, when I said it was boring, it's like it doesn't even dive into the nitty gritty of why those characters were going through those challenges and those struggles and all their circumstances. And I think, too, if you want a good understanding of this movie and why it's not working for a lot of people, I've read a couple of articles that were written by journalists who grew up in poverty or grew up in similar areas in the country. And what they all point out is that this film is clearly a film that is trying to teach Hollywood people a story or some lesson about what people in rural Ohio or Kentucky are like. And they don't understand the actual challenges that a poor person in these areas would have to deal with. One example that one of the journalists gave was, you know, a person who is struggling financially wouldn't have their card decline at the gas station because they would know exactly how much money they would have on the card to spend on gas. Just little details like that. It's just like the research just didn't go into it. And like the type of wine he was choosing and how he didn't know which fork to use. Like those are just such like uncomfortable details that feel so forced and stereotypical to a movie about someone who is in kind of a fish out of water Mm -hmm. space or situation. And it just... It just didn't work for me. No, completely. I think the one thing that does work, and maybe just why it's so funny, though, is if you displace yourself from the narrative and what's actually happening and just enjoy the performances that Glenn Close and Amy Adams give. Mm -hmm. The movie is basically just a bunch of one or two liners between the two, and it's so wild and campy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is really early on, too, but one of the first lines Amy gives is, I wouldn't spit on her ass if her guts were on fire. Uh, And the accents are fun. Apart from talking about this in terms of, oh, is this their best performance ever? Or where does this rank? I think it is Mm -hmm. just total craziness, really, that they chose these roles. Yeah, I agree with you. It was fun to watch Amy and Glenn in these roles because they are so over the top. And I think with all of the baggage that we might have associated with them in the awards conversation of 
They've both been nominated multiple times and have never won. And this is kind of them pulling out all the stops in a ridiculous movie. And, you know, you don't know if that's their intention or not to just get an Oscar with this Oscar bait type of movie. But I think that's the narrative that people are kind of forcing on this film and on those performances. And I mean, when you see Glenn and Amy in the prosthetics and in the Old Navy and... It's just, it's overwhelming. I think Amy more so than Glenn, because I think Amy's character is much more problematic. And where the story goes is really glorifying Mama, Glenn Close's character, for her support for JD and her being the reason for where he is today, essentially, and not his actual mom, played by Amy Adams. But yeah, what a mess. So I hinted at this just a little bit ago, but I think the awards conversation around this is going to be really messy too. Do you think that it has awards potential? We've also talked about this for so long and joked at one point if if we were creating buzz for this movie or not, or if it was actually existent. It definitely was at one point. I mean, Mm -hmm. especially for these two, they were really high up in the conversation early on, but I think it's just completely fizzled out. There is no flame left for this film now that it's been released and people have seen it and people have been talking about it. I mean, even for Amy and Glenn, Amy is lead and Glenn is supporting. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with those placements, but they've just been overshadowed in their categories by way more nominees. I agree. I think that what will be interesting to watch, so two things, right now we're in this like wonderful time when the critics awards are coming out and we just are on this high like what if chloe Zhao mm-hmm. wins everything all the way to the oscars and what if nomadland really is the film that just wins everything and you know what if minari picks up awards and we're just seeing this swell of support for actors and movies that we really love but we have to remember always that you know at this point a couple of years ago tony collette was winning for hereditary and it always changes Once we get to industry awards. So I think that's definitely still maybe a possibility. But I think that the other side of the coin is just how many Netflix movies will industry awards support. And I think that The Trial of the Chicago 7 kind of takes the place of a hillbilly elegy in the sense that like it's the feel good kind of sappy movie that a lot of times voters will go for. And that maybe that I had expected Hillbilly Elegy to be in a way, which was completely Mm -hmm. not what it was. Netflix will definitely be in the conversation. I think they'll have a lot of these awards in the end. And they have so many films this year. We don't really hear from the industry until February and March. I mean, we've been getting critics awards through December, January. I think a place to watch will be the National Board of Review. And maybe it does have some support that we're just not aware of yet, then maybe. I think there's a chance for Glenn in particular. I think that she's still the strongest bid that the movie has. And then maybe Hans Zimmer for the score. But we have a lot of great scores so far this year, I feel, already. Yeah, I don't even think he has a chance here. It also did make Obama's top movies of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Score we have Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have Soul and Mank. Mm -hmm. One of those at least will get in. News of the World might happen. Also not one of my favorite movies of the year, but it does have a really (laughs) grand score by James Newton Howard. Maybe even Minari. I I just am always so skeptical of 
the industry like doing the right thing and you know picking a movie like Minari so I think right now the way I'm feeling is we just have to wait to see what the industry does of course I wouldn't be shocked if they just somehow go for it not in a lot of categories but just maybe in a couple but right now it's definitely at the bottom of my list as far as these Netflix films go do we think it's most likely to happen at the Globes or no I have another Netflix movie that'll be bigger at the Globes but I think it could potentially benefit from the drama comedy musical split and they like stars and glenn and amy i think right they like that's that's i think where it might have the best chance is glenn or amy at the globes at least with a nomination i'm mm-hmm. like not considering any wins for this at all but like in terms of nominations <laughs> and being present i think that's their best mm-hmm. chance how do you feel about ron howard i think his career is over <laughs> <laughs> that was not the answer i was expecting but i will take it There's no way. There's absolutely no way. Let's move on to the prom. (laughs) Hello, interweb. My name is Emma Nolan, and I'm 17. You might have heard about the prom in Indiana. I just want to go to prom like any other kid. All opposed. I know we all have stories to tell, and here's mine. Oh my gosh, check this out. It's all over Twitter. She wanted to take her girlfriend to the high school prom. And the PTA went apeshit and they canceled it. We have got to go down there. Yes. Raise holy hell. We will be the biggest thing to happen in Indiana since whatever's happened in Indiana. We have come to this community on behalf of a young girl. Maybe not as conflicting of a film, but one that is problematic in ways we can discuss. But if you haven't seen The Prom yet or know what it is, the film here directed by Ryan Murphy is an adaptation of the Broadway musical, which was on Broadway, I want to say two years ago. Also a very short run, but it's about a troupe of hilariously self-obsessed theater stars swarming into a small conservative Indiana town in support of a high school girl who wants to take her girlfriend to the prom. So I think first thing we notice, lots of keywords, lots of huge acting potential here, and the perfect framework for a musical. It stars Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, James Corden, Carrie Washington, Ariana DeBose, Joe Ellen Pellman, and more. So you mentioned that you had some trouble with it generally. I think first off, Ryan Murphy. That's like kind of all I need to say. He's behind the recent Ratchet, also on Netflix, which I haven't seen, but heard it didn't do so well. He produced The Boys in the Band, obviously behind Glee. Just lots of material that either has mixed reviews or that I don't like necessarily really care for. So with Ryan Murphy first, I think one thing that works for him is that all of these Netflix original movies for the most part that we've seen recently from the good to the bad have this kind of Netflix gloss over them and I think Ryan Murphy's natural instinct is to make films and TV shows that look just shellacked like it's just like a specific bright glittery colorful vision that sometimes works for me and sometimes does not it really depends on what it is I will say though this before we get into the casting specifically of James Corden I think that the prom as a movie was really fun I think just like as something to put on at the holidays the music was getting stuck in my head I thought that the choreography was fun a lot of the performances I did really love Ariana DeBose I thought that she was 
really wonderful in particular. Meryl, of course, who these days is just doing whatever she wants. We'll talk about her in a bit with awards potential, I'm sure. But I thought that it was just a really fun, easy watch. And it did make me miss Broadway musicals and, you know, being in a space with people together celebrating and singing and dancing. And it just, it did make me miss that. And it made me really wish that I would have seen this stage show when it was on. I think that's the biggest thing for me too, is that it just really made me nostalgic to be in a theater and watching a live Mm -hmm. performance happening on stage. I think I was in the second row when I saw this, which was really cool to see them up close and the same lyrics from the movie were stuck in my head back then when I saw it. One thing's universal is like keeps playing uh-huh. on a loop in my head. <laughs> uh-huh. I love that. That's a, It's a good one. One thing that Ryan Murphy did directing this that I just didn't like that might be a me thing. I don't know. But I don't really understand when directors are shooting musicals and they shoot from like the waist up. Because I think that a lot of times when musicals really work, like Singing in the Rain or West Side Story, you get a lot of full body shots so you can really get the full experience of the choreography and here he was doing a lot of close-ups and I get that he's you know trying to show us these stars that are in these parts but I really wanted I think some more dynamic camera work from him that was really showing this choreography because a lot of the choreography I thought was actually really fun and really well done Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about musical choreography, so maybe it wasn't. But to me, at least, it was something that I really did want to see more of. I think there were a lot of big, outstanding performances in the movie. But I think this direction specifically brings back images of Glee, which is where you get that stage and the close-up trying to do this like Mm -hmm. back and forth. And the shot of the four leads walking down broadway alley or whatever this is you know this is not new york city every theater is not on the same street unlike this opening shot but that shot of them four reminds me of singing in the rain where they're walking down the street and in this like backwards tracking shot so to casting meryl and nicole as the two leads basically i don't know what nicole is doing she's just like having fun with whatever (laughs) She really is. And Meryl is channeling her like Florence Foster Jenkins and (laughs) she does whatever she wants. She was just in Let Them All Talk and HBO Max, which was wild, but she's great. Mm -hmm. Carrie Washington as this bigoted PTA president, mom to Alyssa, the girlfriend. I wouldn't say there's anything like bad except for James Corden, who is disastrously offensive in this role. From the minute he starts acting. There's no question. I don't know what Ryan was thinking. When this casting came out months ago, it was a very whitewashed cast. I mean, you have Carrie, obviously, and then Keegan-Michael Key, who play bigger performances in the film. Casting James Corden as a straight actor in this gay role, who was originally played by Brooks Ashmanskis in the musical, who did a great job and was nominated for a Tony. I think there are just so many other choices he could have made here. BuzzFeed released an article, I think a week or two ago, and it was 17 famous actors who could have replaced James Corden. But it's so true. I mean, they include Nathan Lane, Titus Burgess, Harvey Firestein. I haven't trusted James Corden since he decided to sing over Paul McCartney in Carpool Karaoke. So that's where I stand on my relationship with him. But I think that he just plays this caricature of what some straight people think 
a gay man who is on Broadway is like. And that's exactly what he goes into for this performance. He's super flamboyant, very over the top. It's just an odd choice. If you're Ryan Murphy, you have so many, so many queer men who you've cast in your shows Mm -hmm. or movies before that you could have used in this part and who would have gladly, I think, taken this part. It's a really great role. I personally have the BuzzFeed list. I think Titus Burgess would have been really, Mm -hmm. really fun in the part. It's just such an outdated stereotype. And yes, I think straight men can play gay roles. That's a whole different conversation. But I think especially in like a musical setting and an industry that has a lot of gay people in it, especially when the director is and like you said, you made all this content before, like why not Billy Porter? I mean, I get that James Corden looks like Brooks Ishmanskis, who plays Barry Glickman on Broadway, but that's like not what we needed. To me, it's just like an easy fix that could have and should have happened and it just didn't. But Mm -hmm. I think that like this is a fun movie to watch over the holidays if you're looking for something that's just easy and light and Mm -hmm. heartwarming and has a good message. I think that The Prom is a really fun choice compared to especially I think other dramas that Netflix has put on recently. Sometimes you don't really want to watch those around Mm -hmm. the holiday season. So with awards, I think this has more potential than Hillbilly Elegy does. I will say it's more for like the creative below the line ones, meaning like costume and makeup and hairstyling. I don't think it'll get in for Best Picture. Do you have any more that you think it'll get into or? There is an original song in the prom, Wear Your Crown, I think. You know, maybe that is the song, I guess, where Meryl Streep raps. So oh, no. I'm just. That's what that is. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I I just don't I don't know about that. But um, I think definitely if you're thinking about the Oscars, I don't think this has a ton of potential for anything above below the line. And honestly, I don't even know if it'll get in there. I will say I think this has a lot of potential for the Golden Globes because you have big stars and you have the benefit of having this separation with comedy musical and drama and when I think about comedy musical this year I don't really know without West Side Story which would have been the one this year I think to maybe clean up there but it got delayed I think we can see this maybe getting a lot of nominations and I will maybe call it now that Meryl will win the competition though is tricky because The other thing is I could see the Hollywood Foreign Press randomly going for Palm Springs because of Andy Samberg. That's my push is if Hulu does it right, Palm Springs really could win here for best motion picture comedy musical. I think that's really the only race is that and the prom right now. So if Meryl won, this would be her 10th Golden Globe win. Oh my god. (laughs) So she hasn't won a Golden Globe since The Iron Lady, which she won the Oscar for. And then before that, it was Julie and Julia. (laughs) Julie and Julia. Well, what I see there, which is interesting, is those Golden Globe wins led to Oscar wins or noms. Mm -hmm. This won't happen. (laughs) I don't think this will (laughs) happen. What about James Corden? Oh, my God. If that happens, Do you think they would do that? I'm out. What if Golden Globe's best actor comedy musical was like... (laughs) Pete Davidson, Andy Samberg, James, James Corden. Corden. Oh God! Oh my God! I don't. I can't think off the top of my head who else, but those three just popped into my head, and that just sounds like a cursed ceremony. Thanks. Okay, so let's move on. I think that we've really just gone down the rabbit hole on the prom, and we'll see what happens. But before we move on to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Nam or Bomb is back. 
and we have Netflix originals. Before this, I was thinking, wait, haven't we done this before? Because I thought we had mentioned some of these, but we get to hear my bombs again. Okay, so first up, The Kissing Booth. <laughs> I still haven't seen this. I, I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> I can happily say bomb, though. It is a bomb. But you should watch it just for like the strange oh. relationship between Jacob Elordi and Joey King. Oh. <laughs> Next up is To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I'm going to say Nom. Yeah, I like these. This is a Nom for me. Okay. Next up, we have Set It Up. Have not seen this. Really? <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like, what do I expect with these rom-coms? The poster just looks like a Hallmark film. It's not a Hallmark film. Okay. It's better than that. So it has Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. So it's cute. I would say Nom. Okay. Next is Triple Frontier with Ben Affleck. Epic. Nom. I think when this came out, it got a lot of praise. I don't entirely remember this, but I think there were good parts. Can I just like stay neutral? No, you have to pick. You have to decide. <laughs> nom or bomb. I'll go nom. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we love Ben Affleck in a vest. Next, we have Okja. You gotta support Bong Joon-ho here. This is a nom. Nom for me too. I really haven't seen many of these the King. Really? Yeah. You didn't I see The King? I haven't supported Timmy yet, no. Oh, jeez. Um, bomb. <laughs> and that's why. <laughs> no, it's not because of Timmy. It's He does his best. I mean, it's just one of those very slow, moody, period films that it's just a challenge yeah. to get through. Okay, next we have Roma. Nom. Definite nom. One of their best originals, maybe. Mm-hmm. Marriage Story. Oh, no. Which we know. I need to watch yeah. this again. Yeah. <laughs> I almost threw on my criterion. This is a nom for me. All right, here we go. Sierra Burgess is a loser. <laughs> I'm going to go nom with this one. What? <laughs> it's all relative, you know. I have to say bomb here. Oh, this is a tough one. Noah, I mean. And Shannon Purser, Barb. Yubi Halloween. <laughs> Nom. <laughs> no. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this was such a bomb. Oh my god. It's this it's bad, terrible. but there's something about how Adam Sandler said if he didn't get nominated for an Oscar for Uncut Gems, he was going to make the worst movie we've ever seen, and then we got Hubie Halloween <laughs> that I just respect. Ugh, that's fair. And June Squibb as his mom. I will mm-hmm. say the cast here is I have no idea how they got all these people together. They just wanted to have fun. Maya Rudolph, Julie Bowen. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about Maya. Alright, next we have Miss Americana. No, absolutely not. This is a bomb. Have you seen it? Did you watch it? Yes. I watched it when I moved out of my old apartment. I put it on. And that's as much attention that I could give it. I will also say bomb because I pay for Netflix to not have commercials. And I don't need an hour and a half commercial about Taylor Swift. My feelings about Taylor Swift's politics did not change after watching this movie. Yeah, I... I feel like we're it's a betrayal if we like go too far into the Taylor Swift okay. conversation since we, <laughs> we had Ryan stop. on at the beginning of this podcast. But what's hard about the documentary, I think, is that it, it's a, one of those types of documentaries that celebrities often create. Like I said, it's like a commercial where they're trying to really just mold your image and your view of them. And to me, despite songs or albums of Taylor's that I've liked, and I can't and I don't think she can separate her craft from what she thinks people think of her. That's a tough point for me. And this documentary sums that all up. Yeah, I won't disparage this or her anymore. I'll move on. Have you seen Private Life? I liked Private Life. Okay, good. 
I would say nom. Yeah, this is a nom for me. I also think Paul Giamatti should have been nominated for Best Actor for Private Life. He was really good in it. This just should have gotten more attention than it did. Next, we have The Boys in the Band. Now that we just shit on Ryan Murphy for 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I've only seen like the first half of this. Which I think did a good job compared to the stage play, which I did see on Broadway as well. Mm-hmm. And I liked how he brought all of the actors back from that performance. Mm-hmm. So I will say Nam. I had other friends that weren't as keen to it. Yeah. I'll say Nam too, but I'm definitely middle of the road. I also saw the stage play. So that just in my mind, it was like there wasn't enough of a difference for me. It felt very much like a filmed stage mm-hmm. show, which I was like, I've already seen this. Yeah. I don't need the Ryan Murphy Netflix movie of this. The Social Dilemma. I never watched <sighs> this. Oh my gosh. This was a nom. I haven't seen it. This is great. Okay. I'll watch it. Even if people trash the movie as maybe being too simple, I think its concepts are important in the social media driven world. So it might be in some doc conversations. I know it's been chosen for some critics nom so definitely watch it okay next we have dick johnson is dead i just finished this last night i loved it so much this is a nom for me it was so good it's a nom for me too my weak heart could barely handle it my octopus teacher do you know what this is i will not watch it (laughs) i haven't (laughs) seen it yet but i've had multiple friends tell me i need to watch this like and not jokingly no, I know. So on Bravo, I watch Southern Charm and one of the women that's on the show posted in her Instagram stories, these videos of herself like sobbing after watching my octopus teacher. And I thought something was actually wrong with her. And she's just like fully reacting to this movie and how sad it was. And after seeing that and then reading the premise, it just sounds like something that would really just tear me apart. And I don't know if I want to venture into that. I definitely will at some point. I'm intrigued. It's just so bizarre. (laughs) Okay. So last we have Disclosure. Which I think we've also talked about at some point. I will say Nam for this. I'll say Nam too. We talked about it when we talked about Silence of the Lambs. Right. Yes. Which I think would have been on our horror draft episode. Our last Netflix movie we'll talk about today is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. A one, a two, a you know what to do. be an empty world without the blues. I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. But they want to call me Mother Blues. That's all right with me. It don't hurt none. (laughs) Where's the uh, horn player? I got a friend. Come on, Libby. You rehearse like everybody else. I'm going to get me a band and make me some records. I know how to play real music, not this jug band shit. You call that playing music? I know what I'm doing. Go on and find me, I don't care. When I got there, they began to say. That's to get the people's attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part. Me and Cutler play on the break. IMDb description here takes place in Chicago in 1927. It's a recording session where tensions rise between Ma Rainey, her ambitious horn player, and the white management determined to control the uncontrollable Mother of the Blues. It's based on the Pulitzer Prize winner August Wilson's play. 
It was directed by George C. Wolfe, and it includes Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, Coleman Domingo, and others. How did you feel about this? Apart from it being definitely Netflix's biggest awards contender of the season, I would say besides Trial of the Chicago 7, I love this. I rewatched it yesterday and again, loved it. I think it is really watchable, especially for a play adaptation. I thought so too. It's a tight, like 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's only a little over an hour and a half, which I appreciated. I think that Fences, the last August Wilson play we got with Viola, I think had excellent performances, but ran a little long and felt, I think, more like a stage to screen adaptation. I think that this did in a lot of ways, but I think there were still some really interesting ways that this director chose to shoot the actors Mm -hmm. and capture some of these monologues that I really liked. And I also didn't know anything about Ma Rainey, this character, this real life person Mm -hmm. going into um, watching this film. I hadn't seen the play or read the play before. So I think having Viola Davis there to bring this larger than life character to life on the screen, I think that there's just so much to unpack with her character and with her performance. And Mm -hmm. she's just this powerful, defiant woman who was just an incredible creative force. And just thinking too about how black people used the blues to preserve their legacy and to tell their history. I thought that that was just a really, really neat component of the story and something that I hope that a lot of viewers will latch on to and will learn a lot about through this film. Ma's character is just... Oh, God, I can't call her Ma. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. The memes that have been going around. Yes. Oh, my God. I just saw them today. <laughs> okay. Ma Rainey's character, as was her persona, is so complex. And I love Mm -hmm. that while, you know, you do get to see so many sides of her in the movie, you still want more. I think it's really impressive what they show because you kind of are teased in multiple directions and how really throughout the movie Ma is seen as this like really demanding stubborn woman but in the end you know she was right this is how they Mm -hmm. treated black people and still do and it's horrible and the fact that she spoke up for herself and for her team her band was Mm -hmm. you know necessary and she was really powerful with her words and the other thing about Ma that I really loved watching was how you know she wasn't really outspoken about it but she was bisexual in real life and her partner in the movie, who is kind of this pawn between Bozeman's horn player and Ma, also mm-hmm. exemplifying their conflicting relationship. It's just so much fun to see all of these different relationships play out in the movie. I agree. I think, yeah, she's such a complex character and having Viola there to really, I think, just illuminate so many different facets of her character was just such an enjoyable viewing experience for me. This was one that on Friday I kind of put on just just in the background and then I just was instantly just in it like five minutes and I was like oh actually this is one that I'm like fully invested in I can't it's not just a second screen Netflix movie I really need to pay attention to what's going on and it wasn't hard to I do think I mentioned loving the runtime I do actually think we could have used like 15 or 20 more minutes even Mm -hmm. of spending time with these characters because I did really love a lot of them and I think Viola despite not having a lot of screen time in comparison like she to me is clearly a lead here Mm -hmm. when she's on screen she's so charismatic and interesting and just even her drinking a coke was something that I was just like thrilled to be watching 
that goes back to us talking about category fraud in different decades. To me, I think it's more of a feel of the actor being the lead versus mm-hmm. only being based on runtime. Viola totally steals the screen, not from everybody else, but when she's in it, you know, she is the actor. I love this scene too, when she's performing in the tent. Mm-hmm. It's just, she's so much fun to watch. I think that we need to be talking about Viola the way that we talk about Meryl mm-hmm. and Daniel Day-Lewis. It's like every time she is on the screen, you're watching an artist. Going back to Doubt with Meryl, Viola, and Amy. Oh my God. Ugh. She should have won for Doubt. And I think it's little things like the tent scene in the very beginning that detracts from this being a straight play to screen adaptation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this does so much better than, I will say, Fences. And like with Fences, I will say, I think there's something that's just fun about getting to watch Denzel and Viola play off of each other. I'm so curious what's going to happen with all the Netflix contenders and specifically with this movie because... It is getting a lot of critical attention. I mean, obviously we have Viola and Chadwick here. I think it was big news when Netflix decided to run Chadwick in lead and not supporting, which I felt Mm -hmm. was category fraud, but a lot of people find it to be the right place for him now. How do you feel about that? I think I'm okay with having him in lead, but I definitely, my inkling when I watched it was that his performance was more of a supporting performance. Mm -hmm. However, what I will say is that, I mean, when you're watching him deliver his monologues as Levy... It is just so moving and so powerful. And I think obviously Chadwick Boseman is no longer with us and having that layer on top of it. Um, But just you're really, again, similar to Viola, just seeing an artist, seeing a performer just do what they do best, which is just fully embracing every emotional aspect of this character. And with Chadwick doing this, delving into his trauma, I was just so impressed by his performance. And there's a scene too that was just a gut punch when he breaks through the door and there's just the brick wall behind Mm -hmm. it. Wow, this is such a metaphor for Mm -hmm. racism and for the black experience in America. Then with Chadwick being the one there doing that, it was a great scene. Yeah, I think looking at this film in terms of now knowing what he struggled through and his condition, I think it just makes it all the more powerful. And, you know, sadly, this will be the last piece we get from him. But I think it's incredibly strong. I think he is a shoe-in, and rightfully so, in winning Best Actor at the Oscars. So I, I do hope it happens. You know, the category is stacked, and we can talk about all the other nominees at some point. But he is very deserving. He delivers multiple monologues in this, and each one is so chilling. And like you said, you just put it on, and you were going to rewatch it, and was so captivated by it. I was going to work out with this in the background, and then I ended up just watching the movie and not working out. <laughs> Because, you know, I did want to pay attention and the script is so strong, it's quick, and it flows really well that you just become totally engrossed by what's happening. I fully agree. So let's talk more about awards. I think that you're right about Chadwick Boseman. Last year, I think that kind of right after Telluride, people just kind of said, you know, Renee Zellweger is winning Best Actress for Judy. 
and then it happened. Mm-hmm. This, of course, this Chadwick Boseman performance is stronger than Renee Zellweger's <laughs> in Judy. And, you know, there, there are other things attached to it for sure. But you're right. I think that if he wins, he will. I mean, it is a completely deserving win in a very, very stacked category this year. Mm-hmm. There are so many incredible best actor performances. And that's a category I'm like not always into. So this year, I'll definitely be watching it with a closer eye. I will say what's interesting to me that I could maybe see and I don't know if it's you know the smartest thing in the world but who knows coming out of the New York Film Critics Circle Awards and we'll talk more about these critics awards on next week's episode but Chadwick Boseman won Best Supporting Actor there for De Five Bloods and that performance is great but very very minimal screen time Mm -hmm. this performance is much stronger and I think will resonate more with Academy voters but with Best Actor I think what I could see maybe happening and I don't know about this but I could see if they really latch on to Anthony Hopkins and the father them pushing Chadwick Boseman in supporting instead of lead I mean it could happen based on what happens with other critic circles and industry votes and nominations before the Oscars I mean it could when I saw Defy Bloods I said this is a great performance but he's barely in that movie and I don't think that's enough but you know it's really all about his name this year so it's if he can get two nominations like James Dean mm-hmm. which would be pretty remarkable so I don't I don't know it's possible I also think supporting actor is kind of wide open in comparison to actor I think there are so many performances there I think he could definitely win best actor but that to me is more stacked than supporting actor where right now we don't really have a clear front runner or winner I'm just still kind of surprised that Netflix okayed the best actor push when they could have really pushed Delroy Lindo as well. And I know Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. has had a lot of push. He won in Venice for his performance, but they could have had multiple strong pushes instead of just this one. And do you think Viola will win? I mean, nomination, I think, is sure. Yeah. I mean, we've always discussed the best actress race of every year and how it's the most contentious. I think she has a good chance. I don't know where that category is going to go this year. Sydney Flanagan has been winning a lot of the best actress critics awards for never rarely sometimes always which is crazy yeah it's an inspired choice it's one that i respect but one that i did not see coming right and i don't necessarily see that for the academy as being their Mm -hmm. lead push or even a nomination i mean she could be a new nom but if Viola were to win, she would become the most awarded Black actress. Currently, Denzel is the only other Black actor with two wins, and he has the most nominations with six. And then next is Morgan Freeman with five nominations and one win. But then if, say, Frances McDormand were to win, she would have mm-hmm. three Best Actress wins, which would only put her behind Katherine Hepburn with four Best Lead Actress wins, which is also very big. So I think right now those two are in the lead and it will be interesting to see what else happens in the best actress race if other nominees were to push forward more. I completely see that too. I see Frances and Viola as the clear front runners. I think if Viola wins, she'll be the second black woman in history to win best actress after Halle Berry, which was back in 2001 for Monsters Ball. Mm -hmm. Frances McDormand winning two is a huge deal. The only other person with three currently that's still working, I mean, he says he's retired, but Daniel Day-Lewis with three lead ones. Yeah, even more than Meryl. Crazy. Yeah, so I'm excited to see how this one shakes out. Another nom that I think 
is important is the SAG Ensemble. Mm-hmm. I think that this would be a really good film to win SAG Ensemble. I don't know if that will happen. I think that, you know, we have Trial of the Chicago 7 in there, but I think that this one has a strong case. No, I would love that. In other categories, I think costume, makeup and hairstyling, again. And I think adapted screenplay is another shoe in So I think now, too, let's talk about just more broadly to wrap up. How do you think, with all of these Netflix releases that we've talked about so far, which ones do you think they'll really push? And which ones do you think the Academy will latch on to? I think off the top, Trial of the Chicago 7 for picture has to happen, and then Sorkin for director. I don't know if a director push for George C. Wolfe would happen, but I think picture there would be good, too. Do you have any that you're like really excited for? I think with Netflix, one thing I'm curious about is after seeing the New York wins and seeing the love there for De Five Bloods, I'm curious if that will get a second life since that came out in June, so it's been a while since people have seen that and it might not be as fresh in people's minds the other thing I will say is I'm really curious I think you're totally right about Trial of the Chicago 7 with Mank I'm wondering if this will be like the opposite of what usually happens for Fincher which is normally like critics love it and then when it comes down to it he doesn't win anything at the big ones and Mm -hmm. I'm curious if like this will actually stick with the industry and if critics just aren't attaching to it I mean as you say that Mank just won production design with the film critics so it's happening i mean we'll see i just like i don't think we can underestimate the age of the academy and if they'll like mank or not so i think they might i don't know but i'm still you know i'm still standing firm in my belief that trial of the chicago 7 will win best picture okay i think it's coming okay i'll maybe i'll change but you know it's (laughs) at this point you know on december 20th i'm saying the trial of the chicago seven it's hard to think of all these categories right now and think of Mm -hmm. what netflix has because they have such breadth this year which is great and i think very exciting for them because they've been pushing to get in the awards conversation for so long and it just Mm -hmm. really hasn't happened and there isn't a ton of competition last year and in years past they had to compete with major studios like Mm -hmm. warner brothers so i think that this year it's kind of theirs for the taking but it still very much comes down to like what races they decide to Mm -hmm. invest in and who they want to invest in there yeah because we saw it happen last year where i think they spread themselves too thin across multiple projects mm-hmm. and it didn't really pan out well for them. Is there one Netflix nomination that may not happen but that you want really to happen? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Okay. One that I'm worried won't happen, but I really want it to happen is Delroy Lindo for Best Actor. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah, there's still this like doomsday scenario in my head of like Oscar So White where they'll just nominate Chadwick Boseman and then they'll nominate like Gary Oldman, Anthony Hopkins, Tom Hanks for News of the World and Ooh. Ben Affleck for The Way Back. Oh, God. Like there's a scenario where that <laughs> happens. It's possible. Oh, So that's my one, I would say. Do you have another one? I mean, honestly, I would love to see Spike Lee get in for director for Defy Bloods. I think that race for me is much more interesting this year than Best Picture. Best Picture is just odd this year. Like I have, I think like four or five that I think are for sure ins. But then when you start to like fill in the bottom, it's kind of like, will the father have support? Yeah. Like how will that get in there? Is that just an actor showcase piece? You know, I think it gets interesting when you start to go down the line and one night in my Miami will that have an academy audience but director and actor 
are like the most fascinating to me of just who will get in. Mm -hmm. um, not even necessarily who will win. That's the thing. Like Regina King could get in for a director. Lucky for us, we have like four more months to talk about this because we have a very long <laughs> award season. So we will see what happens. But for now, we just have more Netflix releases to watch. So check out the three that we reviewed and talked about awards potential for today. Let us know what you think. And eventually we'll be reviewing others too, I think, when we get The Midnight sky and pieces of a woman which i'm very excited for that one too very excited but also controversial now with the fk twigs and shia labeouf controversy and he's in that mm -hmm. and but i love ellen burston and vanessa kirby yeah. so i want the best for them and they're both in the conversation so angry so next week on oscar wilde we will be discussing two new christmas releases which are promising young woman finally, and News of the World. I'm so, so nervous to watch Promising Young Woman. News of the World, I think, I don't know if anything shocking is going to happen in that one, but we will see how that all shakes out. I'm excited to talk about those with you. Both, I'm assuming, very different films. <laughs> very, very different. And I absolutely cannot wait for your reactions to Promising Young Woman. I think we might need to hold off until we do our pod, but... I'm so excited. I'm very excited for this needle drop that everyone's talking about that I don't know what it is. So oh, yes. trying to remain spoiler free. So no one spoil <laughs> it for me. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you again to Man of the People, Ryan Lamb, for joining us for a bit at the beginning. And we'll also do a little critics update next week with Bennett again as well. A little awards draft, your wrap up before we really oh get God. into the <laughs> award oh. season. Very excited for all of that. We will see you next week. Stay safe and wear your masks and happy holidays. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Happy holidays and wear your masks.